I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book, Book Club. Club. Ashley. Yes, Claire? How was your week? It was beautiful. We're looking at 79 degrees skies. No, we're not. But I don't know what numbers. 79 degrees skies. Man, I don't freaking know. We had three glasses of wine last night, and I woke up like hungover, and I don't know that I've recovered. I will say you got fucked up. Did I? I feel like when you get drunk, you like start tripping over words and just like <laughs> saying shit loud. <laughs> okay, but that could actually be any minute in my life. Yeah, like, but in a different way. You like will like say something kind of nonsense and then look at people like it's a punchline. And I feel like in normal life, you like know when you fucked up words and like when you've said something coherent. And when you get really drunk, you'll just kind of like. Like, you know that look where I think everything like, I said last time was funny and you can't I take think it. everything you said was funny, but there was some, like, incomplete sentences. <laughs> and then you were like, huh? <laughs> I feel like that's how I can tell if you're drunk is when you just, like, stop. <laughs> you, like, don't really finish jokes. Do you have, like, a, a title that you would chapter your No, memoir? but I just want to say that yesterday I was getting a bagel and I was sitting outside and some man was walking by, like, across the street. And he was, like, kind of screaming at his friend. And Max just looked at me and he goes, that's what you sound like when you talk, Claire. Like, that's. <laughs> the level of your voice and I just went no <laughs> and I screamed it how was your week my week was good I would call this chapter brain mush I feel like my brain is confused I feel like I'm a logical and orderly thinker and I like really entered a new normal during the pandemic and now that it's like half undone I like it was so warm this week and everyone was outside having a nice time and that was great. And some people are vaccinated and some people aren't and comedy shows are starting to come back and other stuff isn't. And it's all just like this big old mess of like what, it, what reality are we living in in this moment? Like, is it summertime? Is it a pandemic winter? Like, where am I? <laughs> I agree. I mean, I've been going back to work and I've been just like wanting to slam my head against a brick wall and watch it bleed out. I can't even fathom going back to work. I'm honestly shaking in my boots for that day. And I mean, my friend Sophia was like, well, should you just quit? And I was like, definitely not because I've been yelling at Ashley about quitting her job. And so I can like literally never quit a job for the rest of my life because then I would be a hypocrite. So I really dug that grave from myself, yes, painted myself bitch. into that corner. But also I'm like, I don't know the problem with, my job is that, like, at some point I'll have to go back to work. I'm like, I did used to go to work every single day, and I do think I'll be able to build that muscle back up. But it's I the, do think it's a muscle. It's a muscle, and also I think right now it's especially brutal. Like, I used to wake up, go to Tribeca, do a Barry's workout class, go to work, sit in my office all day, take my lunch break, edit video, go to two or three mics, and then come home and do a podcast with you. And I think what's hard right now is that I can't do anything but work. Like nothing else in my life has gone back to normal except for the working, yeah. sitting in office part. And it's like, it's not fair that the only part of my life that's back is the worst part. Yeah. So I think that's emotionally what I'm struggling with. I do think obviously I'll get him back in the groove. My goal, oh my God, I'll check back in with you guys later this week. But I guess on the next week's episode, I want to make the most of being home this week and getting a lot of shit done. So I'm challenging myself to wake up at 6 a.m. every day. What? Just to get in the habit. I just feel well. like I, I'm really productive in the mornings. And I feel like I wake up early naturally. But then I just like look at Mac. He's sleeping. I'm like, I'll just cuddle and go back to bed. And then I wake up and now it's 830 and I'm late for stuff. So I am challenging myself to wake up at 6 a.m. every day this Monday through Friday. If anybody's listening and you need to be held accountable for something, DM me. We'll start like a DM accountability group. We can DM each other every night and be like, tomorrow you said. And I'll be like, tomorrow I said. And it could be fun. So if you hear this and you have something that you're trying to get done next week, DM me. We can hold each other Stay accountable. Stay accountable, babies. And we will report back next week in bald-faced honesty if Claire woke up at 6 a.m. this week. Tomorrow's Monday. We'll see. I feel like um, I'm nervous about Monday because it's the beginning of the week and nobody will have heard this episode yet. Yeah. And I'm scared if I fall off on Monday, then I will be like, well, we'll start again next week. And I'll have like quit before anybody <laughs> even heard that I was going to start. Um. Yeah, I could for certain see that happening. So I am excited to see how this goes for you. And you can DM me at 6am if you want, but I can guarantee you I will not answer till 8.15. First, before we get into this week's book, I'd like to thank some reviewers. Give some reviewers a little shout out. Karina Flores 1. Flores to you. Does that mean flowers? I don't know. Okay. Kara DeWillish. Nice. I should never let you read these, to be honest. Turbo and Ozone. Um, I love those things. Very scientific. Piece of crap. One nine 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 nine. You're a piece of gold to me. Thanks for the review. Okay, 
let's just get into this week's book. I'm so excited. You guys, the fans, the listeners, the little squirmy wormies. The squirmy pick- worms on our Patreon, which subscribe if you want to have a say in which books we pick and also hella bonus apps. Pick this book. It is Wildflower by Drew Barrymore. And I want to say... Thank you. I had no idea that I was going to fucking adore this book. I went in with my typical misogynistic evil brain thinking, listen to what this bitch has to say. And what she had to say, it was deeply moving to me. (laughs) I like loved it. Um, What did you think of Drew Barrymore before you came to this book? Okay, so here's the thing. She has been obviously in our generation an ever-present presence. And everybody is. I feel like, she, I mean, she's been around since. She, yeah, like, but I think she's been a part of some deeply iconic projects during our teen years. She was like my mom's Millie Bobby Brown. I have always not necessarily had a high opinion of her. Like, I've never had a negative opinion of her. She's always just been there. Do you know what I mean? And I never loved her or hated her. I've always really liked the stuff she's in. I think Charlie's Angels and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle are two of the greatest movies ever made. And I will genuinely die on that hill. I looked up the reviews before we started recording this and they're not great. But I, I really, in my heart of hearts, believe that and everyone who doesn't like it is wrong. So for that, she's always been very important to me because being, I mean, in Charlie's Angels, she created Charlie's Angels. Those two movies exist because she made them happen. I didn't like Drew Barrymore. And this is my misogyny coming through. I was always like mad that she wasn't hot. I've actually recently been thinking about her a lot because it always made me mad that she spoke at the side of her mouth. And I guess I assumed it was a thing she did on purpose. Like, it was a weird, controllable, cloying little tick she had picked up where she was, like, actively putting her mouth to the side. Like, see here, folks. Like, she was, like, smoking Interesting. a cigar in a cartoon of Mickey Mouse. And then you found out that she has a lisp. <laughs> no. Then I started doing front-facing videos on TikTok all the time and having to edit them meticulously and caption them. And it forced me to look at my face dead on talking all the time. And I became very aware that I also talk out the side <laughs> of my mouth. And it's not my fault. It's not anything I'm doing wrong. It's just that one side of my jaw is longer than the other side. I have a very asymmetrical face. I have like a hot half and a fine half. <laughs> and that's why I average out to a seven but can look like a like an eight and a half in photos. Because <laughs> I do have a six and an eight. <laughs> and they like kind of come together and they average. But now that I see that it's like... It's not that I'm doing anything weird. I'm talking totally normally. I just have a fucked up jawline that I was born with and is in many ways a disability that I can't help. Uh-huh. Um, I have a lot of sympathy for her. Totally. Do you know what I realized just now is I think that we've been presented with the opinion that she is hot. So I grew up watching Charlie's Angels. When that movie came out, it came out in what? 2000. 2000. So I was eight. I remember going to see it with my best friend, Blink-182. The song was in it. And these were, like, sexy women. And I remember being, like, resentful that, like, she would put herself next to Cameron Diaz as, like, two hot women. Yes. And do you know what I realized reading this book is that she, she is not, in fact, hot, but she's beautiful. I'm, I've totally changed my opinion on her. The other thing that I came into this book was I knew she was a Barrymore, and I knew that the Barrymore family name was, like, an important name. I have yes. literally no idea who her grandfather is. Totally. I, like, I think she was, like, listing the movies she was in, and I was like, I have never heard of those movies. I don't know shit about old Hollywood, but I did assume she came from this family dynasty where do you know how Angelina Jolie like cast her own daughter in Maleficent yeah and like I assumed she had gotten E.T. that way that like her famous dad had dropped her off she had a famous dad she had a famous grandpa she came from sort of I assumed she grew up in like an old Hollywood mansion castle sitch like I never knew anything about her life and it turns out that was deeply not the case. And I also knew that she was like fucked up and a drug addict and everything. Totally. So that could. That's what I knew. This book undid everything I knew, did beg a lot of questions. I would like to see some bank statements. I'd like to see some. I'd like to talk to some agents who were prominent at the time. I do have some questions. Of course, everybody has their perspective. And this book, which I think is very interesting, is not like a exploitive tell-all memoir it's not like a it's not even a memoir in the sense of a story of her life it is many stories of her life it's, yeah they're vignettes that spread time they cover her a relationship they look at a moment yeah so there's nothing fluid so there are things that we've pieced together based on like a sentence from this chapter and a sentence from that chapter. And they really, you know, we've done our best. As you guys know, we're really up in our game over here at Celebrity Memoir Book Club. So we've placed the chapters in thematic order and we are going to give you what we can get the best idea of Drew Barrymore's life, 
her growings, her changes, her pains, her relationships. Yes. And I will say within this book, I did feel that there was absolutely zero rhyme or reason to the order of it. I would love to ask her like what she thought this book was about. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. There were some hits and some misses. Yeah. I found I found the overall theme and the overall sentiment and the tone to be beautiful and wonderful. And I found some of the individual stories to be deeply pointless. Yes. Let's get into (laughs) it. All right. So let's talk about her childhood. Like we said before, it was not what we thought. She was raised by a single mom in West Hollywood. Her dad and her mom broke up while the mom was pregnant. Yeah. And it seems like even when they were together, it was very on and off. He was the son of extremely famous actors. And he had a promising career when he was young that he kind of squandered. By being like an absolute batshit refusal. Do you think that he had a very serious mental illness? (laughs) Yes. Now that you say that. (laughs) Because the way that he comes into this book, and we'll talk about him a little bit more later, is he'll just kind of like show up, break into her and her mother's home, break shit, and leave for a year. Yes. I think something that's very interesting about this book is it is not a tell-all. It is not like a, and then my dad hit me, and then I was on drugs, and then I was, I had a 42-year-old man essentially rape me, and then I had, and then my mom prostituted me out. It's very subtle. The crazy shit happens between the lines. It happens between the lines, and she gives very controlled and constrained glimpses. She gives very constrained glimpses into her childhood to set a tone and set an understanding of what it was like for her emotionally without giving exploitive details. So the details she gives about her dad breaking into their apartment breaking everything in the apartment and then taking the spare key and leaving doesn't come to almost the end of the book in a chapter about how much she loved her grandfather and how he was really the only protector in her life. He lived in Pennsylvania, but he was visiting them when this happened and he went and found the dad and got the key back so that the women wouldn't have to change their locks. Yeah. It was a safety hazard for her father to have a key to her home. I will say once you've broken into the home, it seems like a key becomes irrelevant. For sure. But I get the I get the idea. I get the gist of I will say do not think you have free reign. Safety in a break and enter because you hear a noise before the danger comes. And when someone has a key they can sneak in stealth. <laughs> yeah, you have to be pretty committed to a break-in, whereas with a key, you can just be a couple beers in and think it's a good idea. Totally, totally. So, yeah, I do think that it... And then she, whenever she references her dad later in the book, he is referred to as shoeless and houseless. Never knows when she'll see him next. She know, doesn't know how to communicate with him. She says sometimes he would just give her a sign, and then they would like meet up at Joshua Tree together. So she was raised in West Hollywood in a little apartment complex. And her mom worked at the comedy store in the Troubadour. Mm-hmm. What do you Honestly, know? both dope fucking venues. I was going to say, I mean, obviously I know what the comedy store is from comedy. Is the Troubadour like a, the comedy store of music? It's not necessarily the comedy store, but it is like a very, they're both very cool, historic, old Hollywood places that especially during that time were cool as shit. The Troubadour is just like a cool music venue where a lot of cool acts have played over its long history. I have a theory that like this dream we have of indie runaway cool up and coming 90s LA teens yeah that like exists in our romanticized mind was only Drew Barrymore's experience there's like a couple other celebrities so it's like on the Sunset Strip you had like the comedy store and then a little bit further down is a bunch of cool music stuff so you had like the Viper Room yes. which was like a really cool spot and then you had the Whiskey A Go Go and you had the Troubadour and they were all like in this West Hollywood strip that is now so, so hyper developed that these places exist as like absolute relic. I mean, and now it's all, it's all just like, you know, tourist stuff. Rock and roll is dead. Disco is dead. Uh, what else? What else is dead? God. <laughs> Punk is dead. Punk is dead. <laughs> the Viper Room is where like Johnny Depp, like a young Johnny Depp would chill. So something interesting from this book is I assumed that everything she had had was handed to her from her Barrymore last name. Her mom was just broke as shit and just like any other momager needed to make money off her kid. She was no better than Dina Lohan. 
So Drew Barrymore had been auditioning and doing commercials and small things since she was 11 months old. Puppy chow commercials and stuff. And basically when she got E.T., that's when everything took off and she became the breadwinner. She literally says, I was disgusted. I was the breadwinner. She hated it. She says the happiest and safest years of her life were before seven years old when they were living in some tiny little apartment in West Hollywood where whoever lived in the apartment complex was like their extended family. They were in this little complex with these plants out front called Birds of Paradise. That's how she opens the book, though. She's talking about the way that these plants represented everything to her. And so what I wanted to talk about is this summer, I started reading this book, and this Birds of Paradise chapter was so fucking goofy and, like, woo-woo to me that I put it down. I was like, I don't want to keep reading this book. <laughs> the It was just, like, these messy, crazy plants. And the gardener came and pruned her Birds of Paradise, and she like viewed it as like an absolute loss. She talks about now how she has a gardener and she's like on the first line of defense for flowers. And whenever her gardener has to prune something, he has to run it by her and get her approval. And she's like, if you ever prune something without asking, I always say, I'll prune your arms and legs and chase you around with them. Which is psychotic. (laughs) It's not a good opening chapter. That's what, I mean, I literally stopped reading. I was like, I am not, She has not earned being that annoying yet. You love her by the end, but in this chapter, you're just like, okay, you are just a psycho rich girl. It does like lay the groundwork kind of for her obsession with like plants and full circle shit. Like her company is called Flower. Like she is obsessed with this stuff. God bless her. I love her. But she even another chapter talks about how she's obsessed with collecting hearts. Yeah. I'm like, what does that even mean? Like a... A heart? And I'm like, she really does. She's looking for symbols of good always. And I do think it lays the groundwork, as you said. She is somebody who searches for optimism, searches for hope. She loves signs. But she chooses to be happy. And I do think this, like, obsession with flowers and collecting hearts, it's like she's always trying to fill her life with happiness. Yeah. And then so I think that gets into the chapter about her mom at the end called all ages party Mm -hmm. where she talks about how she can't tell how old anybody is and she doesn't really care about anybody's age. And it really comes from the fact that her mom had lied about her age her whole life. And she, to this day, does not know how old her mom was. Yeah. Her mom who was born in Pennsylvania, right? No, she was born in a German determined camp. Is that true? I thought her mom just said that because she didn't want her to know her age. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think Drew knows. Okay. So basically the mom lies to her own daughter about how old she is. And so Age is just really a nonsense. And she talks about how her mom didn't talk about age. She talked about who's mature and who's immature. And she's like, you could be really old and be childish or you could be an old soul and be four. And it kind of broke my heart that she was saying this because that is something that you say when you're about to like take advantage of a child. Like the whole old soul thing, like that is a... That's a trauma response, I think, to like be like, I was just really mature for my age. And it was like, you shouldn't have had to be, though. You shouldn't at five years old be like, I was the one who was aware of paying the bills. It's like, okay, that means you're in a bad home. And the fact that the mom was constantly being like, you have the mind of an adult at four years old. Isn't that wonderful? I could quit my job. Yeah. Like, that is not actually good parenting. I mean, sending your daughter out on these auditions constantly, like, she was waiting for Drew to like hit it big and then they lived off of her money for a while and they like partied as equals. Like it was very Scientology of them. <laughs> and then in the chapter about her grandfather, the other thing that comes out that's very interesting to me is she talks about how he left the mom's mom. So like the biological yeah. grandmother and remarried. And she's like, he chose happiness. He didn't want a miserable life with that wretched bitch. She says <laughs> the biological grandmother was apparently very mean and, mean and cold. And she's like, he didn't want to live with her. And so in this determined camp, what is it? Sorry, it's a displaced persons camp in Germany. Mm-hmm. Not a deterred persons camp. Interesting. It's not clear where they were refuging from. But her mom, she says, then named Ildiko Jide. I don't know what that means. Yeah. And then in the end, she also thinks, in the acknowledgement, she thinks her mom under that same name. So I was confused about, like, if her mom has gone through a couple names. Like, I, I don't know. Like, was that a stage name? Was that a maiden name? Was that, a like, a spiritual name? Tough to say. Tough to say. Her mom was a bad mom. <laughs> <laughs> and she is furious about it. She says to this day, um, she keeps her financially together. Yeah. But they don't speak. And in the acknowledgement, she literally thanks her mother. Thank you. I am ever so pleased to be on this planet. I think that she's come to terms with the fact that like, without her mom, she wouldn't exist. But, but aside from that, I think that's where we can leave it. <laughs> but you already see, like, it's interesting the way she talks about her parents. She is pretty mad at her mom. She doesn't want her to be ba- bad off, but she, we'll talk about it. She forgives her dad. She forgives her grandfather for leaving the biological mother. Yeah. I, 
do think we've talked about this a lot. It's much easier to forgive a dad. An example that I thought was very interesting is this chapter called The Seagull. And she talks mm-hmm. about how her friends all call Drew Barrymore the seagull as a nickname because whenever people order food, she like stares at their plate. And she says that comes from when I went to school in second grade, people would trade lunches and stuff. And there was like this lunchroom chaos of trading the lunch. And she goes, and I couldn't participate because my mom would forget to pack me lunch every day. So yeah. I would have to like beg, barter and steal to try and get fed. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, this was post ET. This was in her new Sherman and Oak school. So she presumably is, has bought them a house, but her mom can't remember to make them lunch. She literally says it bothered me less that I had an absentee father than it did that I was not in the lunch game. I highlighted that too. It was crazy. And I really do think that's an exact example of something that we see time and time again in these memoirs that you would forgive a father for not being there at all than a mother I will normally as a mother who tried her best. I will say I do not think whatever her name was tried her best. I do think she was an out and out awful mother, but she was yeah. there. And I do think it's interesting that she calls her father an absentee father when then down the line there's that little tidbit about how he would literally break into their house and destroy everything. She says as a little girl, anytime he showed up, she kind of hints at it. She's like, we'd be out to eat and he would find us and make a scene and we never even knew how he found us. And I was like, oh, so he was like scary. And stalking. And stalking and physical and crazy. Like, I don't want to use the word crazy because I do think he had a mental illness. But he there was, like, violent, scary outbursts. It was unpredictable and unsafe. (laughs) And unsafe. And actively holding... I mean, to break everything in your apartment when it's just, like, a single mom with her kid... A waitress mom and her kid. Like, he was actively hurting them. And to write that off as an absentee father is, like, you wish you had an absentee father. If he had taken off and gotten the hell out of Dodge and you never saw him again, you would have been safe. You could have built something. Yeah. Instead, he was coming and actively destroying you and taking the key to let you know that you're never safe. And that is worse. But that she is forgives That is scary him. as fuck. Yeah, she forgives him. And I do believe that she's leaving out maybe some sort of diagnosis or something. I think what the seagull does, what the chapter the seagull does about not having lunch, it's a quick little vignette, as we said. And she like, like kind of jokes about how to this day... She is always wants what other people are eating yeah. and she's obsessed with making like the cutest little lunches for her daughters because she wants to be the mom that she never had. But I think in this chapter, it really shows she goes, look, I'm going to be honest. I had a bad childhood. I'm not going to give you like the tragedy porn that you might be looking for. I'm not going to sit here and give you moments and dates. And she kind of right. found this actually, I think it's like a perfect story to let you know that she was not some rich girl that grew up in privilege. Even after she made it big, she wasn't just some rich child actress who was crying on set. She was forgotten and the money was taken from her and she was completely neglected and not raised. I mean, to be, to be getting offers internationally and to buy a home and not have lunch is fucked up. And I will actually say, so I know Mariah Carey was not famous that young, but I did see a lot of parallels in the, parenting and then um, the way that they became parents between Drew Barrymore and Mariah Carey because I feel like both of them talked a lot about the loneliness in their childhood um, and the neglect like both of them had single moms who just kind of like did their own thing and were like by the way you've got school tomorrow (laughs) and then both of them have these like very specific points to call out like Mariah Carey says in her book like my children will never be alone Drew Barrymore talks about how important dinner is. She's like, having dinner as a family with my children, we are just going to be eating dinners together every day. All the time. I can't wait to just be eating dinners together. She says she never had dinner with both of her parents. Not once in her life. But it's interesting you bring up Mariah Carey because another parallel I noticed is how they wrote their books. The way that they did not write it necessarily chronologically. Yeah. It is very much, here's a chapter about my relationship with this person. It's very vignette It's very... I mean, Mariah's really accumulated to something a little bit more than this one. But this one, I think, like, thematically accumulated. But there was no, like... Yeah. Greater storyline. No. <laughs> Speaking of her parents and um, their relationships, she sort of talks about one thing with her dad, the thing that she had to let go, and she never even really looked for in the first place is having any sort of father. Like, she says that when he got a little bit older and a little bit more decrepit and they were kind of on, like, a level playing field, I think because he was so physically scary. Yeah, she says, literally, I, when it got to the point where I could beat him up. Yeah. We, were, they we just could be became friends. friends. And then she... But she also talks about, like... When, I do think he was abusive, physically abusive. Like, I mean, not, he I, wasn't just breaking plates. He wasn't like, I want to break everything in here, but I as soon as a person gets in my way, I'm not going to touch him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously, towards the end, it becomes very obvious, but I, 
that first line of when we when I could physically beat him up we, and we became equals, we yeah. could be friends. Like because she trained in kung fu for Charlie's Angels, probably. Literally, like that's so sad that she's like, well, now that you can't attack me anymore, can we get to know each other? And he was like, only because uh, I can't kill you. Really sad. <laughs> so clearly, her father was not someone who could be trusted in the slightest, and. By trusted, I mean even led into the same room as her. So she did kind of end up with a lot of parent figures throughout her entire life, which we'll get into some more later. But as a child, her mom was obviously trying to be an actress. Like she wasn't just living in West Hollywood working two jobs because that was like her main passion. She too was trying to be an actress. And so she was taking classes at the Lee Strasberg Institute, which is to this day a very famous acting school. And there, um, Anne, who was Lee's wife, was kind of a motherly, I think her godmother. Her mom really seemed to like wiggle in and be like, I'm not going to raise this kid, will you? And people were like, oh, I guess I have to. She also talks about um, after she got E.T., she viewed um, Steven Spielberg, if you've ever heard of him. He's a famous movie director um, as a father figure type and he like kind of took her in and she spent a lot of time at his house as well she loved steven Spielberg. she had a lot of cute little memories of him and i do think that even though later in the book she talks about like not even being certain if she wanted a family she like blatantly did her entire life she yeah. talks about on the set of et how the other the boys um who were her brothers in the movie became like brothers to her there's another point in the book where she's talking about um i think she has like three or four situations where she mentions becoming close with people and how they became like brothers to her. Like she's always got these new brothers. She's always got these parental figures. Family is very important to her, but for her, it was always just like the family she picked. Oh my God. I mean, in the and not the family she... In the chapter about her grandfather, when she talks about how he died and she's so sad that her kids can't know him, she says how like the best thing she can do for her kids is let them spend time with their other grandparents. And she says, they know how important family is more than I do in so many ways, but I hold on to all of it because it is such a gift. I finally have a family and I will never, never, never take it for granted. Damn, dude. Yeah, he, he was just so amazing, she says about his, her grandfather. And the only thing that feels within my control is to have my daughter spend as much time as they can with my husband's parents, who are so important to me. And I fight for time with them. I don't have to, really. They're the most loving grandparents you could ever imagine, but I wonder if they will ever know how much I appreciate them. Yeah, she is obsessed with his parents. She has this chapter about her grandfather, like in Hawaii. And I do think that's a beautiful memory the way that she like paints these moments with people like, it just really does seem like her life I mean she was kind of a poor kid growing up but she loved that life because she wasn't being used yet yeah it was so easy for her to be happy all she had to be was not actively exploited by her own mother but this was a trip to Hawaii that they paid for with her ET earnings yeah and it was like the last good memory she has and I think then after that everything took a tumble yeah because after that ET exploded it became a global success and she was on like a world press tour at what eight years old she was getting roles left and right and then her mom just like started taking her so she doesn't specifically there's no chapter about this part but she mentions twice that when she went to rehab at 13 it was because her mom just didn't know what to do with her she says she had a lot of anger building up as a teen she talks about in the grandfather chapter two that after that trip she started getting angry at her mom. Her mom stopped talking to the dad as much. He fell out of her life. She didn't know how to ask about it and that she was getting so angry at her mom that she never even stopped and took the time to reconnect with her grandfather. And then he died while she was in an institution. Yes. And she says, and as you said, she says it twice, my mom brought me to that institution slash rehab because she didn't want to deal with me anymore. Right. Deal with her. What she means is, like, obviously Drew Barrymore was, had a lot of pent-up emotions, but, like, the mom was also just, like, taking her out partying at... 11 years old like she was 12 doing drugs like with her mother it's really fucked up I mean she talks about being 11 and in Germany yeah and just like living there by herself drinking every day after set yeah at 11 literally 11 then after she gets out of rehab she talks about how her career was basically torched because she was viewed as this problem child who had to go to rehab and she says that um, the issues with her mom had kind of just come to a head and she decided to emancipate herself. And her mom just didn't protest in the slightest. Yeah. Like an emancipation is like a literal divorce from your family. And her mom supported her through it. Her mom was like, yes, let's get, get done what needs to get done to get this paperwork in place. And then at 14 years old, she went out and got an apartment. I mean, I think a very telling quote that kind of like wraps up how she felt at 14 was work was a very positive thing in my life. And sadly it had been taken away because my mother also put me in an institution because she felt helpless. Yeah. But when people found out, they just wrote me off as damaged goods. And I sadly understood that 
I was never unprofessional, but I was on hiatus from being employable. To hire a 14-year-old who is just out of rehab is like an enormous risk business-wise. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of questions here about how bad was she? How much was it like just bad parenting? How much was it like she had a true problems? It is interesting that like Kendra talks about running away from home because she felt that her mom was like hindering her from partying and she her mom like was trying to physically restrain her into the house. See, I don't think Drew Barrymore was Kendra. I, I, I don't think she was of rebellion. None of them are that bad. None That's of them what I'm saying is that I like in terms of like how bad was it really? Like it seems honestly not it seems <laughs> like it was not coming from Drew. It was coming from her surroundings. She doesn't talk about addiction or anything like that in this book. Like there's yeah. no there's no drug I'm pretty mention. sure she's still she talks about drinks. How I don't dad, even know if she's sober. Yeah, she definitely is not sober because she talks about drinking wine later in the book. Yeah. So I think that it wasn't any sort of like internal addiction situation. It was literally just, I don't know, you're like, this just like is your environment. You know what I mean? And then her mom couldn't take it anymore. And I, I'm sure they were fighting all the time. And I'm sure that she was fucked up on and rebellious and got into fights with her mom because they were both on drugs. And she was also like a teenager who was hormonal and like think, and think being, about the fights that you have with your mom when you're a teenager and now your mom has like just handed you cocaine and then you have a teenager And also fight. you paid for that cocaine. Yeah, and your you pay work. her bills. You bought her a house. Of course they clashed. <laughs> she gets out of rehab. And emancipates herself immediately. And then she gets this little apartment. And the so first thing she crazy. does is she like gets a job at a coffee shop. I mean, we don't know how much money she had from her child acting Roles because I think her mom absorbed a, absorbed a lot of it. And I think legally your parents only have to put 15% away for you in a trust. So this is one of my things where I'm like, her life was not what I imagined, but I do, I would like to see receipts. I would like an outside figure to let me know how much did the Barrymore name carry? Obviously her dad was unemployable and unreliable. Her grandparents were dead. Her great uncles were dead. Was there any money coming in from the Barrymore name? She says that they had a two bedroom apartment and that seemed like a lot to her at the time. And it does seem like a lot. I do wonder. I honestly don't. Cause she says it was also in like a really kind of gnarly strip in I LA. I do wonder going into auditions, did the Barrymore name carry any weight? I wonder. What did she get from her dad's side of the family? Was it really nothing but a name? It's tough to tell. And then, and then my second question now is when she came out emancipated, how much money did she have? Because she went and got a job at a coffee shop. It seems like she lasted one week. I think she lasted a little bit longer than a week, but she was not good at getting there on time. She was not good at anything. This is why this chapter, which is halfway a throwaway chapter, halfway deeply telling, it's about laundry. And it's a chapter about how she literally did not know how to do anything. And here's the question I had about it is where were all these parental figures? Like where was Steven Spielberg in helping her now that she was like fresh out of rehab, living in her own apartment. She didn't know how to put together any of the furniture she bought. She didn't know how to do laundry. She I do wonder like back, this doesn't sound stupid, but like back in the day before the internet and before cell phones and stuff, I do think it was just hard to get in contact with people. Yeah. Like maybe they just kind of lost touch during that year I mean, and a half or she was away. Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe she was on, I'm sure she was unreachable and incorrigible the first like between 11 and 13 mm -hmm. and I'm sure they just like weren't able to get to her and then she was ungettable too and then when she came out nobody really knew and she was just on her own so she talks about just like getting this job at the coffee shop and then you know like re-entering the audition circuit kind of seeing where the wind took her I mean, she talks a lot about like through her teen years kind of being unsure of what would happen next I'm kind wonder, of okay with the idea that maybe her acting career was washed up yeah, and this is also kind of around the time that she, like, starts going out to Joshua Tree and, like, spending time with her dad. And I want to talk about next this chapter, the Bronco, which sort of transports us from this, like, wonky teen time to some more adult situations. When she and her friend, who had taught her how to do laundry, moved to a house in the hills, and they were having a raucous time. She was, like, 17 years old. She had a Bronco. And she was like driving around to auditions and she talks about knowing that this period of time was sort of a very important hinge between her being like a child actor has been and like maybe she'll have a different career and like she'll just always be a footnote of like people who were child stars or it could be an entryway into a new part of her career. So she and her friends are driving around. They party all the time. She has this Bronco. And she was, like, fucking reckless. Like, she was insane. She was, like... I don't think she was insane. I felt like they were harmless pranks. 
I think that busting down the door okay, of a that parking one was lot, a lot. That was New Year's Eve, though. So mostly <laughs> what it was was they had a megaphone that they would use to like catcall boys and pretend yeah, to yeah, pull yeah. people That over. stuff is harmless. But on New Year's Eve, they came out of a party <laughs> and they were going to another party. And she tells the story about realizing that her car was in a parking lot that was now locked up for the night. And rather than just call a cab, she like scales the fence, gets into her Bronco, and then rails the car against like, the gate until three separate it times until opens. it op- until it breaks down and opens and then they just leave and she brings the car back to the dealership and trades it in for a new car and it's sort of like this was the new chapter for me that bronco was like my reckless teen years and now i'm gonna have a sensible car and get to auditions but i do think this is really important because i think what we both loved about drew barrymore um i don't know that yet we've given her much to love we we're all on the same page that she had a shitty childhood. Yes. <laughs> but what do we love about her? I think what I love about Drew is that in this book, she shows you where she chose to change. Yeah. She, I find her to be very endearing and lovable. And what I love about her is that she wants to be good. And she points out these moments in her childhood and in her young adult life where she goes too far and the wake, wakes up the next day and goes, this is not the person I want to be. And it reminded me, I was saying, it's very like not Lord of the Flies and that she is kind of this experiment and what happens when you take a young girl, give her a lot of money and just set her loose on the world without any parents and she wants to be good. She yes. doesn't. She could have become evil. She could have become a, like well, a real. This Bronco is actually a very good story because she didn't take this experience where there were essentially no consequences, literally none. And she doesn't say like, "Okay, what's next? You don't get in trouble for because like this was like before security cameras. Yeah. Like I don't know. These people came back and their gate was broken the next day, and that just like was what it was. And she takes this experience and is like, "I can't be acting like that." And she changes and she works on herself. And so she has, I'm calling them the epiphany moments. In chapters that seem like throwaway chapters, there is a little epiphany moment. She has another story about crashing her friend's mom's like three week senior folks vacation uh, boat vacation and I've actually been on one of those I went with my grandma I had a great time because I love to learn um, <laughs> but it was like one of those trips where that you're with a tour guide and they kind of plan every minute of every day and she and felt deeply trapped to the point where she threw herself overboard yeah she literally jumped off the boat at one point to swim to an island to do what she didn't actually she got there and she was like well that's there's not much on this <laughs> island, actually. It was literally like a rock. And they had to come get her, and she was so humiliated, and she left the next... Or she's even on the boat, and she's like, I don't want to be this fucking person. Yeah. She has another moment where she's reckless in Manhattan, and they're at some divey comedy bar, and her friend does a set, and she jo- jumps up and like strips behind him. And then she does The Tonight Show, and Jay Leno brings it up. And she starts dancing on the stage and she flashes Jay Leno. And then that night she's watching it back with her friends and she's like, yeah, I'm not this person. This is right after she says that her re-entry into movies had been quite a handful of vixen-y type roles. It helped her break free from the child star thing. It helped her like re-enter in a splashy way. And then after she flashes Jay Leno or Letterman, one of those, one of those guys. I, don't, I literally don't care. They're, They're all the same. They've all assaulted all women. Old men. <laughs> and after she flashes him she from that point forward had like a no vixen clause she did had no nudity clauses in her contracts she formally was like no vixen roles from here on out and she started doing much more like wholesome shit yeah she decided to go in her own direction but you really see and i feel like this is the first time the bronco moment is the first time where you see her want to be good and she has no boundaries. She has no rules. And so she's constantly testing the limits for herself and leaving consequenceless and deciding internally that that's not who she wants to be and making the choice to change. And I really like respect that about her. Yeah. And something else that I really like about her. So now that she's probably in her early twenties at this point, so she talks about meeting this woman, Nancy, who ends up being her business partner. Mm -hmm. And I do want to side note, say bad on me for misogyny. I had always known that Jimmy Fallon was married to Drew Barrymore's business partner. Yes. I assumed that this woman was Drew Barrymore's business partner because she was Jimmy Fallon's wife. I did not realize that she's Jimmy Fallon's wife because she started as Drew Barrymore's Yeah, so she met Drew Barrymore. They became business partners, partners in crime. Like they, you know, did road trips together. They became very close friends because Drew Barrymore produced the movie Fever Pitch starring Jimmy Fallon she met Jimmy Fallon and they got married. She meets this woman, Nancy, and Nancy is an older sister of a friend and they hit it off. And she talks about how Nancy is organized and 
responsible and has experienced a lot and knows what she wants. And, and Drew she's very hard on Drew in a positive way. And Drew really accepts that. Like an example is they start they start working together and Drew Barrymore wants to direct a movie that they're going to produce. They could start a production company. And this one, Nancy goes, you can't direct. You haven't showed up on time yet. She goes, you never show up on time. You are not ready to direct something mm-hmm. because you cannot be wasting people's time and money. And Drew was like, okay. And so Drew works on herself and becomes more productive and becomes more, more timely prompt. and less selfish. And, and she goes, when you come into a meeting late and you're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. She goes, you're wasting everybody's time. You're making it all about you. We're, you're flustering everybody. You're being disrespectful. And then on top of that, now everyone has to tell you it's okay. And she goes, oh, you could avoid all of that if you just showed up and respected people. And Drew's like, shit. And I think, I think this is like a testament to how much Drew does want to be a good person. And I think one of the themes in this book is she doesn't have parents, so she's constantly parenting herself, one, mm-hmm. and then creating a family that will parent her. Yeah. And I really think like Nancy is a woman who parented her. And I think if you compare this, I've heard stories that Ariana Grande has a very tight entourage and God forbid you say something she doesn't want to hear one time you're cut. Wow. And I've heard that, that she's very like, like she loves her friends. She loves her friends, but she's never alone. And they're all yes men. And I think, I think a lot of celebrities surround themselves by yes people. I look at somebody even like Justin Bieber in comparison. He's somebody who really had a breakdown kind of, and then went to God and he got involved in that church. Right. Cause he thought that would be like guidance. That would be a true advisor. And I think that guy even recently got added from the church cause he was having affairs. And that guy ended up being a yes man. Who's clearly just obsessed with getting more celebrities into that church. A la Scientology. Yeah. And I think if even your religious spiritual leader, are yes men. I think like even when you seek it out, it's hard to truly find not yes men because everybody is everyone's find, like, getting something from being around you. And I think the fact that Drew paired with somebody who truly was not afraid to tell her no and make yeah. her and push her to limits and she says they fight. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because clearly in this situation Drew could have been like, "Well, fuck you. I'm the talent. I'll find another co-producer." Like Yeah. Nancy was just a flight attendant. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, but instead Drew was like, no, I, you know, I think that what Drew brought was like, she was the name and she also is very talented. And I think that, I mean, when they went through the stuff that they've produced, I was like, these are all my favorite movies. uh, The hit list of what they have done. I was blown away. Let me get the list. Um, but, but instead what she did is she was like, well, I bring the name and Nancy brings so much organization and talent and skill and like meticulousness. And you cannot have a business without that. Like you, I think that like Drew really saw them as equal partners, which I think a more conceited person would not have because of the way that we as a society value celebrity in a pretty sickening way. So here's the movies that they start. They started in 1994 and they contributed to the wedding singer, home fries, scream and ever after. Here's then what they produced. Mm-hmm. Charlie's angels. Ugh, don't even get me started. Donnie Darko. Ugh, don't 50 even get me first started. dates. I like literally we're just like outlining my youth. All of the other reindeer. I don't really know that. Well, that's a Christmas movie that I think did really well. Music and lyrics. I know that one well. Fever pitch. I know that one. Whip it. Double well. Mm-hmm. And he's just not that into you. I mean, what a hit list. What an absolute hit list. Um, he's just not that into you. It's one of the worst movies ever made, but I do think it is like, it's like the Oprah channel. It, it, it has its own channel. It's always on. It is always it's on. It's 5 p.m. on a Sunday right now. If we wanted to watch the first half and then the second half on two different channels, we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so they started this company and then it eventually evolved into flower makeup and flower eyeglasses. She says she wants to have like this big generational company that her children can run like it's Chanel or something. And I was like, that's honestly cute. Oh, you know where she got that? Because she married the Mr. Chanel, Mr. Yeah. Chanel. Yeah. Speaking of their movie career, So she started working with Adam Sandler on obviously The Wedding Singer was their first time working together. And it is, I honestly found this story very interesting, maybe because I like grew up on these movies, but she says that she saw Adam Sandler on screen and felt like absolutely drawn to him as a co-star. She was like, we must be in things together. We are like, our souls are meant to be. And I honestly, I literally don't know if she meant like as a couple or as co-stars. Like, I kind of felt like she was in love with him. Yeah, you said that. I didn't... <laughs> I've just... I don't know. Maybe she just is that passionate about her work where she was like, as a as a co-starring duo, we must be together. But, like, I feel like that he kind of... He also was, like, the hottest guy at SNL. It's kind of like if somebody was saying, 
Pete Davidson, I must have you in a movie. It's not yeah. like it's not like she had some obsession that was nobody could believe it. Like she wanted the biggest comedic star of the time to be in her movie. That's true. I just had this magical feeling about Adam Sandler, the biggest star of my time. Okay, that's true. I guess I didn't think of it that way because I've always thought of him as just like kind of like a weird, goofy dude. And the fact that it, you would have this like magnetism to him, I was and, like, and but he had why? a production company that put out Happy Gilmore, like the biggest movies of the time. Yeah. And then, I mean, she's also writing this in the past tense. They have now had three like major hits together. She has the hindsight to back it up. Yeah, that's true. So they worked together on The Wedding Singer because he, like, they met and he was like, yeah, yeah, we could work together someday. And they kind of sent a bunch of stuff back and forth and eventually landed on The Wedding Singer. Drew Barrymore joins and then they get Carrie Fisher to write the girls part. Can I just say really quick, I actually really admire that they were like, we need a woman's voice. There's like a lot of rom-coms that are like straight up from a man's perspective by men for men and being like, look at men are romantic too. And then especially to get Carrie Fisher to do that, call back to our Carrie Fisher episode. And then they got their friend Judd Apatow to write it. So a lot of, a lot of big boys came into the kitchen. A lot of the world's most talented chefs. Came in and created one delicious soup. Yeah, it was like that guy who A soup I haven't tried, but I've heard good things about. I wanted to talk about the chapter about Charlie's Angels, which is, to me, the most important film ever made. Okay, so before we started recording this, I looked up the Rotten Tomatoes score and the reviews. I think it has a lot of negative reviews, and it's a lot of them were around the consensus that it was, like, campy fun. And I think that this is something that we attempted to touch on with our now deceased podcast, We're in a Fight with Claire and Ashley, that female friendship isn't taken seriously. Thank you. I will say that this movie depicts female friendship in an absolutely strikingly beautiful way. So what I'm trying to say is I think the reason it has bad reviews for not having a story is because to the untrained eye and to the evil misogynist, female friendship does not add up to a story. That's really beautiful. And I will say I was, I hated women when I was eight. I was like (laughs) deeply in the misogynist closet. And so I do think it's a movie worth rewatching. I've rewatched Charlie's Angels 2 full throttle approximately seven to 10 times during quarantine. So she talks about working on this film. She became close friends with Cameron. She, I don't, it doesn't seem like she and Lucy Liu became particularly close. It seems like they had a good working relationship, but she like mentions Cameron Diaz as like a, lifelong best friend. Yeah. The main chapter about Charlie's Angels is not actually about making the movie Charlie's Angels. It's about this like promotional trip they did where they sent these three women out for this like three day wilderness bullshit. What the fuck was that? Outward bound? Yeah. It's kind of like a high school camping trip that high schoolers go on. Okay. It's so like they- for pertur- it's like kind of like what Paris Hilton went through but light. It's okay. like you just take like kind of snarky bitch ass kids and you just throw them in the woods for a week and say learn to appreciate your bed asshole and then make it. They'd sent her Lucy Liu and Cameron Diaz on an outward bound for three days. Some magazines said we'll give you the cover. Yeah. And, and this will be the story. Yeah. So they're doing that. And this chapter is partially a throwaway because it's like I don't care about this weird wilderness trip you went on. But to me it was actually very meaningful because she is bitching and moaning the entire time and She says, like, this movie, like, her entire career was riding on this movie. She put a lot into it. She, like, really pulled a lot of strings. Like, you, like, really put your neck on the line at work. And if it fails, you are a failure. And she did that with this movie. This whole trip, like, the movie was in final edits. She had so much work to do. She was so nervous for how it was going to go. And now she's, like, sleeping on a rock in the woods. The thing I liked about this book is there was a lot of negative self-talk. For as much as she was, like, an optimist, hippy-dippy, like, always, like, on the bright side of life, she does show you the side of her brain that is, like, screaming negativity and how she turns that off. And I think that this chapter really talks about how, like, the only one creating a bad time was her own brain, at this point, and I think I have a tendency to do that as well, where like sometimes I'll be having like a fucking awful time at something that should be fun. And it's like only because my brain is so insecure and like worried about a million different things that are out of my control. And it's like, why am I letting all these things weigh on me? Why am I letting like comparing myself to all these people and where I think I should be in life and like what's going on in all these situations that I can't control, like ruin my day. And so she's on this like weird little trip where she's sleeping in the woods and like everyone else is just kind of embracing it and having a good time. And she's like sulking in a corner the entire time. And she has this real epiphany in a stream where she's like fucking nude with Lucy Liu and Cameron Diaz, which like I think I would appreciate life more if I did that too. But I think that that chapter did a really good job of highlighting a thing that I liked overall about this book of her showing us her negative brain pointing out all of the flaws and all the things that could go wrong and like all the reasons that she sucks and then her positive brain being like 
shut the fuck up. You're good. She also talks a lot about her work ethic, and I really appreciate that. At the end, she has to make a fire, and she kind of just has to keep working, working at it. And so she talks about her work ethic, and she talks about her, she's very proud of her work ethic, and that a lot of her second half of her career is because of her. And I do agree. I do think having the notoriety of your childhood self was helpful, but I do think a lot of people would have written her off, and there's a lot of childhood stars that end up doing nothing. So to create a production company as successful as she has. That's the thing is we've seen is you don't just keep getting things. You had to keep inventing additional chapters for yourself because it's very easy for people to view you as washed up. So she makes this fire and she goes, everything has to get taken away. It has in my life too. Everything went away when I was 13 and I lost my job, my credibility and my freedom and I had to rebuild everything. But like with the fire, I didn't give up. I may not have done it with grace, but I fought my way into something better and more enlightened. I will have many more rounds in life to go, but this was a big one. My lesson here was do not give up. You hold yourself accountable. You stay grateful. You hold on tight to your friends. I looked out the window. I heard the voice in my head come back to me one last time, and the tone was different, calm and kind. It said, you never give up, and you ask yourself how you got here. Did you put yourself there? Can you get yourself out? That was your lesson. Don't forget it. I won't, I told myself. I promise I won't, and I didn't. I went home, and we made a beautiful success out of the film, and once again, I was simply relieved, but much more, I had grown up a little bit more right at the point when I needed to. Yeah, she has all these little, really specific and beautiful moments of growth throughout this book that I think she can pinpoint very well, and I don't think these things came easily. There's one where she's the whole point, and Ashley goes, the whole point is to show how insecure she is, where it's just her and... Cameron Diaz <laughs> and these guys think Cameron is hotter than her and it really is a god she's so insecure when she talks about the family stuff she's so obsessed with having a family like she is so deeply alone I mean she is constantly doing everything she can to choose to be happy and that's why I think when she looks at her grandfather and goes he left his wife and he goes he made that choice to be happy like she has to explain to herself that everyone is doing their best to try and be happy and she has to con- constantly choose to be happy yeah so I actually think that this is a good time to skip ahead she didn't start a family until quite a bit later so yeah. she was 35 years old still sort of at like another crux where she didn't really know what was going on it's, it's kind of that classic story of like she made the choice to not need a relationship. She wrote, it's amazing the things that you do when you're alone. It's actually really fun. Like she like discovered sports and like, you know, got another dog and it just, I don't know. I think she like started to really embrace that she might never have a family because she was 35. She was 35. I mean, she has this line where she goes, I started moving towards the middle of the bed, which I think is like a good metaphor for embracing being single. Yeah. And like taking up all of your space as opposed to holding space for somebody else. It's the exact opposite of that book, um, The Secret or whatever, where she's like, if you want a husband, you have to start setting a plate for a husband every night. You have to like (laughs) sleep on one half the bed. You have to clear room out of your closet and make room for him. I think a lot of people actually do that. I think a lot of people lessen themselves to make space for this person mm-hmm. who's oh, not even there. But really, if you, took up, if you that. took up all the space yourself, somebody would find you holy. You would become who you are. And I think it's easier to find a good partner when you are who you are because then you don't accidentally grow later in life into them and against them. You've yeah. grown. So this is something that I actually found really interesting is she sort of talks about being in this weird place where she was sort of afraid to enter a relationship because she was so happy with where she was in herself. She says, I was feeling different than I had ever felt in my life so strong and I didn't want anyone to take that away. Someone would have to be the human equivalent of an addition and not a subtraction, period. And it's that is, I think, really... I'm curious if that's a thought in hindsight or if she genuinely believed that in that moment. But because I think that's like a really hard thing to acknowledge in a moment, especially like I'm almost 30 and I'm like, if I don't find love in the next year, I'll die alone, which is like obviously untrue. And it's like insane to believe that. But like, I also do think that there is both like a biological societal, like every single voice is like, you better lock it down in the next minute or two, you know? I mean, biological, and she talks a lot about this, like there just is this truth mm-hmm. that she was 35 when she met her husband and it, you don't have time to dick around. If you want a family, yeah, you do kind of have to reevaluate. And it's interesting. So she has a chapter about her husband. Her husband is Will Koppelman. Mm-hmm. His he, dad was the president of Chanel. And his sister had this TV show on TBS about how like, the Upper East Side gets a bad rap. I don't know. <laughs> what was he? He was an actor who never really was ever in I anything. I have literally no idea what he is. I like tried him? to look it up, and I'm pretty sure he was an actor who was never in anything. That's um, so hurtful, because then his sister, like, starred in her own show that she created. She and her eventual husband dated in 2008 for, like, a, a month. Weeks, yeah. <laughs> 
and then broke up. And it seems like a sort of mutual ghosting, which is not a good sign to me. She said it was a timing problem. It wasn't the right time for them, she says, which is different than a timing problem where it's like she was about to like leave town to shoot something for a year. You know what I mean? And you have to wonder like how not ready was she at 32? Yeah. It's not like they met at 18 and then reconnected years later. Like they met at 32. They, yeah. And then they reconnected a couple years later. They just saw each other in a bar and started dating again. He proposed and then she got pregnant and then they got married. It felt like a right thing at the right time, but I don't know if he was like the one for her. I mean, she has some things we were talking about that there's a chapter about how they met and how her friend basically says he's door number one. And that yeah. what you need to do is... When you're given a good man, we always want to say, well, what's behind door number two? And door number two is finding what else is out there. And she says, if you have a good man right in front of you, pick door number one and just commit to that. And that's love. And she Mm -hmm. says something like, in a few months, it got really serious. And she goes, when you're at this age, it has to get really serious quickly. And she goes, I was hoping that after it was done being so serious, it would go back to being fun. And I'm just like, okay, this is, she's writing this from like three years into her marriage. I don't, and then right after this book came out, they got divorced. So. Which is heartbreaking. I, th- I guess you can't talk about their relationship without talking about their family. So that's what I wanted to talk about, like where he comes from. Yeah. His dad had been the CEO of Chanel for like 20 years. They came from the super rich, fancy Upper East Side family. And what to me is very clear that it happened is she fell in love with the family. Yeah. She has an entire chapter dedicated them called... The in-law jackpot. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the way she describes them... And when I would watch them holding their granddaughters all bundled up, fresh and new after the long journey in my body, I would thank God for Will's parents. I couldn't love them more. And for the first time, I'm part of a family. In the lottery of life, I hit the in-law jackpot, pot, the really big one. I mean, she says it was an absolute dream of an evening about the first time they met. And then I, I truly fell in love, not just with Will, but with his parents too. Affectionate, worldly, humorous. They were everything you could dream of. The strong stability and abundant love of their family unit helped utterly clarify what I was feeling inside that was a little unknown. And she talks a lot about how she was at an age where it was less of about like the fun of love and more the functionality of love and like how will your relationship work? And I think that that's really important because I do think that she saw how he was raised and how his grant family was as what she wanted for her children. And there wasn't a spark. And I do think that's what demised it. I mean, to say, when will it be fun again? And you're married in under a year and a half. It shouldn't have stopped being fun in the first year and a half. You mentioned the timing thing before, but I was very suspicious of that because I, I think that timing is only a problem if it's like you met them, but they were in a relationship or like maybe you met someone at a dinner party and they were married and then you meet them again at a party two years later and they're single yeah. now. Like that's a timing issue. Yeah. Or like maybe she like met him at a party and then went to go film in Alaska for a year and like they just had never really had that time. But like she says that they just like went on dates and then it fizzled. And listen, and I think it's interesting. She met his parents this time around of only a few months in. So it was pretty speedy. So it's yeah. not like they were like young and in love and been together for a year and really enjoyed being together. She fell in love with his parents the same night she fell in love with him. And then later she talks about meeting a sister, Jill, who I looked it up. She did Odd Mom Out. Mm-hmm. Jill was like a revelation. When I met her, I couldn't believe my eyes or ears. If Morticia Adams got blended with Oscar Wilde with a dash of Lucille Ball, then that would have to describe Jill. She is brassy, bold, and intelligent. She is a woman at the table having everyone wide-eyed but laughing hysterically at the things she has the nerve to say. And you love it. But she's also incredibly thoughtful. Always have her thank you notes out ahead of time. Uh, She is the person you want to hang out at the end of the day. Again, I fell in love. And we don't get any of this about the husband. You hear more about his parents throughout the book than you do. He gets one chapter about loving him and she gets one chapter about pancakes. About pancakes that we can't even talk about because it was so stupid. She made pancakes bad and he threw up. Yeah, and then he was like nice about it, and that's I, that I think was supposed to be the chapter about where, where, where we fall in love with him because she made shitty pancakes and he was nice. I think those chapters were make, supposed to make you fall in love with her. Oh, interesting. So I mean, we were talking about who was this book for? I think it's mostly for her children. Yeah, there's chapters called Dear Olive and Dear Frankie, and I do think it was like a rehab of not a rehab of the image, but I do think she she's like get to know me now. Hmm. And that's why she doesn't get it. It's not a tell-all. It's not like here are the dirty down-home details. Um, it's very like, I'm a klutz, but I'm trying my best. I have these kids. They're all I care about. They're my whole world. I can't make pancakes. I think I think she's supposed to... She's like pitching herself as your best friend almost. And I did and it feel like I... 
I mean, we always talk about after we read these books, like, would we want to know these people? And I do feel like Drew would be a friend I would get annoyed by, but be so happy to have in my life. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like she would tell me what I need to hear and like be there for me when shit went down. But like also sometimes when I was in like the real shitter, I would be like annoyed at her positivity. But I think she would like relate to it. I feel like, mm-hmm. okay, my feeling about what a friendship with Drew would be, be like is that you would absolutely love her and she'd be really good for you when you're down and she'd be like there with freshly baked muffins, like ready to listen, ready to like get you pumped up and like on your side, let's go get a drink. Let's like, what can I do? I think where it would be hard to be her friend is, I mean, as we say, by the time this book had come out in paperback, they were divorced. Yeah. <laughs> um, their whole marriage lasted about four years Less, I guess. Their whole relationship lasted about four years. It got They popped two kids out immediately, and then it was over. I know she's trying, and she seems like she's overcome a lot. I do wonder fundamentally how broken she is. Mm-hmm. I do think it would be hard as a friend. She's now been divorced three times. Yeah, I think it would get- be hard as a friend to watch her suffer so badly. I think as hard as she tries to have been raised without any fucking family or anybody who cares about you truly... You can't recognize it in other people. And I do think it, it would be hard to be friends with somebody who can't fix themselves as much as you would love them to be fixed. Yes. Literally reading this book, I like, and looking up what happened with her marriage. I was like, all I want is for her to be in love. Like all I want is for her to find true love. And I think that it would probably be hard to like be friends and like watch her go down the wrong road. I wonder if any of her friends knew that Will was the wrong one. Or how many of her friends knew. I Yeah, I agree that that would be hard. That, like, I don't know that you could be there for her the way that she would want to be there for you. I mean, in this book, like you said, she's divorced three times. We get one line about her first marriage. She doesn't even She does not mention second. her second marriage. That's why I say it's a get to know me now. I'm pitching myself as my best friend. Yeah. Because to her, it's, this isn't a tell. This isn't the but retell I was gonna of say, her life. The only reason her current husband was really in it is because he she has children with like it was like and very, barely she even t- wants to talk she doesn't even want to talk about him it's okay you know what it reminds me of not to compare it to mariah carey i was again. gonna say it's like mariah where with it's like Derek cheater i was gonna say it's like almost even a little bit more nick cannony because he's like there and there's nothing disparaging obviously they hadn't broken up yet when she was writing this book but like there's no way things were going well yeah it really was this whole thing where it's like i don't disparage him because he's the father of my children but i don't know that there's like Real love there. Well, I was going to say it reminds me of her Derek Jeter story because she talks about how important dating Derek Jeter was, not because of him, but because of his family. Yeah. In Mariah's instance, it was the first time she had seen an interracial relationship thrive and succeed. And she needed that example to know mm-hmm. that her situation wasn't the only, only way it could be. And I think... Drew fell so in love with his family. I hope they're still close for her sake. Me too. I'm sure they are. Well, I'm sure they, they love those kids, but... I do think it was important to her to see what a family looked like and she just latched on for dear life. And I think more than the relationship to him, it was a relationship to his parents. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, it was the relationship that made her a parent. Right. Yeah. I mean, she talks about taking home her first daughter from the hospital at one point and saying, me, your father and I took you home to the hospital and we were in that room. It was just me and you. Nobody else was there. And I was like, okay, literally there was somebody else there. <laughs> I do feel like I get that sense. I mean, I've never been a mother, but I do understand you're like, oh, you're a mom. All that matters is the baby. But I do feel like in a good relationship, you would say it was your father and I raising. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was literally somebody else in the room. I mean, we get a line about what it was like to see the grandparents hold the baby for the first time. We do not know what it was like. Like, I feel like a lot of women like fall deeper in love with their husband when they see them holding their child. Yeah, there's no, I fell in love with your father more because of the way he was a father to you. There's no talk of his ability to father. And I wonder if that was a part of it. I wonder if she felt like it was a bait and switch. Like they had, because that happens sometimes. Like good parents beget a LA awful child. Like, if he's yeah. a failed actor, I bet he's a real piece of shit. Maybe he's a bad dad. I do wonder if he just assumed that they're, they're super rich. He comes from, he grew up on the Upper East Side. He comes from a ton of money and like specifically like nanny money. Yeah. And I thought maybe he was just like, okay, this is not the life I signed up for. I bet she was like, let's get in the fucking kitchen and do diapers or some shit. And he was like, we don't do that. She does not seem like somebody who can remember to make time for the relationship. Yeah. She talks a lot about being obsessed with those kids and like overbearing. And she's like, I'm doing everything I can. She goes, the number one thing, I will never not be there for them. I will give you all the stability in the world. Very Mariah Carey. I mean, the rest of the book really is about, and it cannot be overstated how much she wants to be there for her kids. I'm not going to like get into the details, about how she yeah. describes her two year old. It's like not that interesting to anybody. Let's just do her. real quick. Our favorite and least favorite chapter, because this book really is like a bunch of individual broken up stories. 
Okay, I think my favorite chapter was hearing about them starting the company. I'm really, she puts such an emphasis on women supporting women, friendship, which is, I know, something very important to us. It was her and this girl, Nancy. They were young. They were like, she talks a lot about hard work, and I feel like I'm always like, am I really working my hardest? Like, really respect the movie she put out, and I like, it made me want to work with her. So I think career wise, I left respecting her as a career person. Me too. And I like the movie she makes. Um, least favorite chapter had to have been when she goes to Africa to do charity work. It's literally a chapter called Africa. She goes to multiple countries in Africa. She does not make that clear. She also says she did it, like she was looking for a way to get involved and Marie Claire offered to like pay for her to go to Africa to do charity work. And I was just kind of like, I don't know, Drew, you just finished telling me that you've made a billion dollars with your films. Maybe you could have paid for yourself to go to charity work or very much better yet, just paid for the charity. But uh, I thought that that was a little tone deaf. It was very 2014, not 2021. But I think her heart was in the right place. God bless. Yeah. I think she meant well, but I think she got it wrong. I think my favorite chapter was, like I said, Outward Bound. I just found it very um, honest and interesting to hear this like flower, blah, blah, blah person, like really show us her negative mindset and how she turns it around. Um, And my least favorite chapter was probably Lemon Ricotta Pancakes, or it's called like domestic bliss or something and it's just a chapter about her making pancakes badly you guys we have run out of time for this episode of course as always if you want to hear more on our patreon we will do an episode where we rip apart all the bad chapters (laughs) we will get in depth we'll go we'll do a lot of stalking about what happened with her marriage her ex-husband's new fiance we'll do a deep dive on the chanel family we will Find out, I guess, what her grandpa did that was so great. I don't know. We're going to do more. We'll watch Charlie's Angels. I cannot wait. Okay, so you guys, Claire told me that I wanted to watch it tonight, but she has some stuff to do. And so I think I'm still going to watch it tonight and then again later this week. I love that movie so much. So as always, if you guys want bonus content for us to be more unhinged and go deeper, listen to our Patreon. Um, And... Please come back next week. We are doing Erica Jane with the author of her book, The Pretty Mess, Brian Moylan. Oh, it's going to be so good. I love you guys.